Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. We've spent a number of weeks now, this is the fifth week, wandering around the question, looking at it from different angles. What if it is possible to live without fear? And now today, as we come to the end of this series together, it seems like we're going to turn everything on its head because we come with a different but equally important question. And that is the question, what if fear, what if anxiety actually can be healthy? Now, I understand that that's a bit of a difficult turn, so I want to talk about it a bit. Let me begin by talking about two books, two books that have been paradigm-shifting for me over the years. It's been years since I first read each of them, but their effects continue to reverberate in my life. The first is a book written by a physician named Paul Brand, who was an orthopedic surgeon who spent a great deal of time studying and treating leprosy, Hansen's disease. He spent time both in India and in Carville, Louisiana, in this country. He and the well-known writer, Philip Yancey, teamed up together to write a number of books, one of which was this one. Now, Philip Yancey was here, spoke from this platform two or three years ago to Loma Linda University Health Leaders, and he referenced this book, a book the title of which is Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. Yancey said, well, this must have been the book nobody wanted because no one bought it. Said So we went back to the drawing board and we changed the title in the hopes that maybe now it would be more appealing to people. I wasn't sure it was that big of a change. It seemed more like a tweak. Then it was called The Gift of Pain. And I'm not sure it increased the sales any. Pain, the gift nobody wants. So I want to read to you two excerpts, actually, from the book. Yeah. Yancey is telling the story of Brand in Carville, Louisiana, one day walking down the sidewalk and apparently seeing, I think it was a bird above his head, and he was quite focused on trying to figure out what it was, what kind, and lost his footing, stepped on the side of the sidewalk on a rock, bent his ankle, rolled it over, fell down, and it's kind of coming out of that experience that Yancey writes this that Brand described. Pain. My body's way of alerting me to danger will use whatever volume is necessary to grab my attention. It was this very deafness to this course of messages that caused my leprosy patients to destroy themselves. They missed the shouts of pain, leading to the direct injuries that I treated every day. And they also missed the whispers of pain, the dangers of the ordinary that come from constant or repetitive stress. Without this course of pain, a leprosy patient lives in constant peril. He will wear two two tight shoes all day. He will walk 5, 10, 15 miles without changing gait or shifting weight. And as I had so often seen in India, even if sores break open inside his shoe, he will not limp. I once saw a leprosy patient step on the edge of a stone just as I had on the sidewalk in Carville. He turned his ankle completely over so that the sole of his foot pointed inward and walked on without a limp. I later learned that he had ruptured the left lateral ligament, severely damaging his ankle. At the time, he did not even glance at the foot. He lacked the indispensable protection 
of pain. So Brandon Yancey's point is that without pain, we would destroy ourselves. That pain is the body's early warning signal. Something is wrong. Stop. Pay attention. Make sure that you know the source of this. And if possible, get it repaired so that you won't face greater danger. Now, truth is, the culture doesn't like that message. So shortly after writing the words we just read, this is what Brand says through Philip Yancey's pen. I must confess that I sometimes question my crusade to improve the image of pain. In a society that routinely portrays pain as the enemy, will anyone listen to a contrarian message extolling its virtues? We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to hurt. So when somebody comes along and says, well, wait a second, wait, 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 maybe pain is a friend, people don't want to hear it. I don't want to hurt, do you? A few years ago, I fell playing basketball at Drayson and, and, and broke the radial head of my right arm, dislocated the elbow and tore all the ligaments, and I was in serious pain. Pain that wants a preacher want to say things, words that aren't in the Sabbath school quarterly. And so I fell, and I rinsed it, and I was behind my, I turned around and looked at it and thought, I'm not looking at that again. And I remember just saying, gut it out, man, because it's going to be a while before the EMTs get here and before you get to the emergency room. They were there just like that. I thought, how did they get here so fast? Later, I found out they were working out in the weight room. They came running down the hall, and they gave me this thing called morphine. And I said, thank you, Jesus. No more pain. I got to the emergency room, and the pain was still there, and they gave me something called Dilaudid. And I went to a very warm and happy place. My wife later had to describe what happened. I don't want to hurt. That's the truth. Yancey, Brand are right Nobody wants pain, and yet Brand says, it's a gift. It tells you something's wrong. So some years ago, and some of you will remember this. I shared this with a few of you at the time. We as a pastoral team read this book. And in the discussion after we had read the book, one of our colleagues at that time, Bernard Taylor, made a statement that has continued to roll around in my mind at times over the years. Trying to summarize the book and its application to us, Bernard simply said, pain is to the body as anger is to the mind, as guilt is to the soul. Now, you understand what Bernard was saying with that. He was saying pain, just what Brandon Yancey are saying. We need pain. It can be our friend. It can warn us of problems. If we don't have pain, as leprosy patients find out, we will destroy ourselves. On the other hand, if we have too much pain, it will destroy us. But the same is true with anger. Anger is an emotion of which if we don't feel it or feel like we cannot express it, we will tend to get violated and abused by others. 
But on the other hand, if you know somebody who's angry too much of the time, blowing up frequently, spewing out anger on everyone around them, you realize that they damage and abuse and disrespect others. But somewhere right there in that middle space, is what Paul maybe talked about in Ephesians 4 when he said, yes, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, you have to be able to experience the emotion, but it needs to have some limits. And what about guilt? Somebody who cannot feel guilt is typically said to have psychopathic traits, to be narcissistic. Somebody who can create incredible pain and damage in others and yet not have a pang of remorse or of conscience. But on the other hand, if you have too much of it and you run around continually apologizing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Pretty soon people say that person's neurotic. Somewhere there in the middle ground. You have to have the ability to feel remorse, to feel guilt when you have wounded someone, to go to them, to seek to make it right, to ask God forgiveness, and then move on with your life. So here's my question this week. What if we were to add to pain and anger and guilt, body, mind, and soul, the statement that just as pain is to the body and as anger is to the mind and guilt is to the soul, what if fear is exactly that to the life. In other words, what if fear might at times be a gift? What if anxiety might at times work for us? So that's the second book I read. It's been some years ago, as I mentioned now. A book written by a man named Gavin De Becker. A book entitled The Gift of fear. We had the gift of pain, now the gift of fear. Not how we are accustomed to thinking about fear. De Becker's premise in this book is fear actually can be an ally. It can be a friend that can warn us of danger. So don't immediately turn off your fear, but pay attention to its source, where it's coming from, and listen and respond accordingly. Because if you don't, you might be injured, damaged, wounded. In other words, fear is not automatically a bad thing. Now, having said that, at the same time, we can go back to this and we can say, well, maybe there are those who feel no fear. What about them? In fact, from an NPR podcast interview, with Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist down at UCS, USC that studies such things, there's an interesting exchange about this reality with a host. So we pick up the interview in progress. The host says, one day in the early 90s, a young woman came to see Dr. Antonio Damasio. Damasio says she looked like a pleasant woman. She had a very open face and looked like a very perfectly normal person. Host. The problem? The woman couldn't feel fear. Literally, she could not experience that emotion. Damasio. Fearless. Yes, that's right. That's the best way of describing it. Host. 
Now, fearlessness like this, that is a biological inability to feel fear, is incredibly rare. Fear is one of the most basic emotions that we have, so it's next to impossible to find someone without it. Damasio. Yes, fear is a towering emotion. Host. In fact, scientists have identified only about 400 people on earth with the condition that was causing her fearlessness. Damasio. It's a very unusual disease called Urbach-Whitey disease. He continues, there are deposits of calcium, little stones in certain parts of the brain, and one part in particular that is a favorite for those deposits is the amygdala. Host. The amygdala are two almond-shaped structures deep in the brain, brain, critical for the processing of fear. And in her brain, the amygdala were completely calcified. Damasio, it's a little bit as if you would go to this region and literally scoop it out. Host, which is why biologically she couldn't feel fear. That bit of the brain couldn't signal to the rest of her body that it was time for her heart to start racing and her palms to sweat. She was alive and completely normal in other ways. She had normal intelligence, no problem with other emotions. Damasio, you know, joy, sadness, anger. She was perfectly normal with those. Fear was an isolated defect. Have you ever prayed, God, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be fearful. Or even thought during this series, what if it's possible to live without fear? Have you ever prayed for that? Be careful. Because just as without pain we can destroy ourselves, imagine what would happen in your life if you had the inability to feel fear. I was driving to San Diego, 15 freeway down near Temecula. It was a section of the freeway that was straight for, I don't know, a mile or two. Wasn't much traffic that day. As I was driving down, I saw somebody coming on the northbound side, coming fast, freeway speeds, I'm guessing 70 miles an hour. My eye immediately caught it because it was a man on one of those high-performance motorcycles doing probably 70 in a full-on wheelie. Coming down, he went, shoom, just right past me. I looked, and I remembered I was driving. Then I looked out of the mirror. I was trying to see, far as I could see, still in a wheelie. You know what I thought? Something's wrong with that dude. Something is seriously wrong. You know what I've said in Texas? They say he needs a checkup from the neck up. There is something not right up here. Does he not feel fear? I don't ride a motorcycle. I don't own a motorcycle. My wife and I, she had a friend in college, died on a motorcycle. I worked for seven years on the neurosurgery intensive care unit as a chaplain, cured any desire we had for motorcycles. She was on prices right, won a pair of Honda Rebels. We sold and bought living room furniture. How boring. Because of one word, fear. Someone here today say, that is incapacitating you. And I'd say, really? I'm not sure in that case that it is. So maybe we ought to be careful about, not, about saying, we don't want to feel any fear. But on the other end, we also don't want to be overwhelmed with fear. Fear to the degree that we're not able to function. 
I mean, I think of people like Alex Hunold. Do you know the name? Free soloed El Capitan. 3,000 feet, cliff, Yosemite. He went up by himself, no ropes, less than four hours. There's a very short list of others who have done short list of others who have done it. The rest of us, because we say, uh-uh, I'm not doing that because I have fear. Maybe our fear can protect us. So here you have this spectrum again. On the one end, no fear. On the other end, overwhelmed with fear. What if in the middle there is something that is healthy about fear and anxiety? So I want to read two passages to you. The first one from the wisdom literature of Scripture. The second one from the Johannine letters in the New Testament. So for the wisdom literature, we go first of all to Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. A very short proverb. One that I learned in my growing up years. But it has a message for us. Here's the proverb, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So there you have it right there, right at the beginning of the proverb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a statement that appears quite frequently in Scripture. In fact, sometimes it appears with language that is just a bit different, the fear of God or something along those lines. But it's a common concept in Scripture, the fear of the Lord. So what is the wise man saying there? Is he saying, if we are afraid of God, that's where the living of a wise life begins? No. How do we know to answer no? Because we've seen that throughout Scripture, dozens and dozens of times, the statement that God makes or God's agent makes in appearing to human beings is don't be afraid, do not fear, do not be afraid. Over and again, that message comes in many different circumstances. So clearly, God does not want us to be afraid of him. So then what exactly is this saying? The fear of of the Lord. Could I suggest to you that it's this? That what the wise man is talking about here is awe and respect and reverence? That that's the beginning of wisdom? It's a recognition that God is God and we are not? That it's a recognition of the otherworldliness of God and the mortality of human beings? What if, in fact, he's writing this, as it were, to somebody who has no fear, says, ah, God and I are good buddies. We hang out together. We're just alike. And the wise man says, no, no, no. God is good, and God is gracious, and God is kind, and God is like you in Christ. He took on flesh. And God does want to be your friend. After all, Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Yes, that's all true, but God is God. He's grand, and he's great, and he's glorious, this God of the galaxies. So there needs to be a deep sense of awe and respect kind of awe that you might get as you stand on the lip of Half Dome and gaze down into the Yosemite Valley and think, oh, 
just awe. Or stand in the desert a long way from any ambient light and look up at the panoply of the heavens and think, I'm overwhelmed with the grandeur of creation, the fingerprints of God. Awe. Fear of the Lord. So I've been trying to figure out how, how, in my own mind, to illustrate that. So I'm going to share with you all I've been able to come up with. It is not a perfect illustration. I'll say that right out of the starting gate. But maybe it contains some of these elements enough to help us picture it. So think of how different our world is today because we discovered electricity. Just think of what electricity does for us. It's able to light our spaces cool our homes, heat our showers, cook our food, increasingly drive our cars. In fact, we could walk out of the front doors, turn right, and go up a ways, and we would walk into a building where there are many people right now being kept alive by machines that are powered by electricity. They are depending on those for life, wanting to get through the valley of the shadow and hopefully emerge on the other side to where they'll be on more solid ground. But between now and then, that's their life. That's what electricity has done for us. And who knows how much more. But. But. We need a healthy respect for electricity. Not because it's mean, not because it's out to get us, and certainly not because it's evil. It does so much good. But we have to relate to it on its own terms. It's an imperfect illustration. But maybe it captures some of the essence of this God that is far above, far beyond us, but who is good who calls us friend, and who loves us. That's the fear of the Lord. And what the wise man says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you have both a vertical component, the fear of the Lord between God and humanity, and you have in the wisdom literature a horizontal component. Because after all, wisdom is all about how we live our lives, how we relate to ourselves as creations of God, how we relate to others. What the wise man appears to be saying is, when you remember that God is God and you are not, and you experience that sense of awe, it will humble you. And you will, in that humility, recognize you don't have all the answers. You need help. And God is there to give it. That's where wisdom begins. Now, as beautiful as that is, there is a danger. And the danger is this, that this fear, awe, reverence, respect, if we don't stay closely aligned with who God is, God's good character, can morph into increasing levels of unhealthy fear till soon we're absolutely afraid of God. So what do we do about that? Well, one thing I want to do today is go over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, and come to a place here where John is talking about God, talking about the fact that God is our judge. 
And anytime I hear that word, judge, it, it elicits some discomfort at least and some fear at best. I appeared as a character witness in a, in a case, I've mentioned it to some of you, a case in which I was in a federal courthouse. I was scared to death. As I watched what happened leading up to my time, I thought, that judge is God in this courthouse. That judge's word was law, and it was scary to me. And finally, my moment came. I was called up to the witness stand. I don't know what was going on in the judge's mind, life, experience, belly. I don't know what it was. But about the time I walked up, he took a sheaf of papers he had in his hand. He was just messing with them. And he set his elbows on the table in front of him. He kind of covered his face like this. And he was just looking at me over those papers. He said, all right, what do you have to say? And I'm looking at this federal judge hiding behind this thing, looking at me over. What I wanted to say is, you're freaking me out. <laughs> What's going on here, you know? I certainly couldn't say that. And so I stumbled out what I wanted to say, and we went on, and I think it made that much difference. Scary. So when I think of this passage where we're talking about judgment and all the rest and fear, I want to know what John has to say about how we relate to that. So we go to 1 John 4, and I want you to notice in this section where he's dealing with God and the fact that we can be afraid, I want you to notice how he begins. Verse 16, God is love. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. No need to fear the judge. In this world, we're like Jesus. In other words, we can live the life in this world that Jesus lived in the world through the power of the Spirit in our lives. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So let me paraphrase a bit what I think John is saying here. He's saying we have no need to be afraid of God because we look at Jesus and the life he lived in the world. Everywhere he went teaching about Jesus, painting a teaching about God, painting a portrait of God and who God is, People stopped being afraid of God and fell in love with God. And John is saying, we can live that kind of life in the world. And the more deeply we fall in love with God, the less we will come to fear God. The more love will crowd out fear. Our love for God overcomes our fear of God. And this, John is very much in the same space as the old wise man was. This is both a vertical and a horizontal reality. It has to do with the way we relate to God and the way we relate to others and to ourselves. This is a way in which we can live. We can live in that middle space, that middle range, because our relationship with God is a primary spiritual relationship that will form all the other relationships in our lives. If we are at peace with that 
able to face whatever anxiety or fear comes in a healthy way with that. It will form us in healthy ways in our other relationships, including our relationship with ourselves. So what might that look like? That's always my question in my own mind. What might that look like? So here's an illustration from my life. world that I live, you'll have to decide if it can apply in your own world. So on occasion, I'll get asked the question, do you still get nervous when you preach? And I say, every week. And sometimes people say, every, you've been doing this for a little while. You're still nervous? I say, yeah, every week. So I've thought about that and about people being a bit surprised at times. And I realized it has to do with two things. The first thing it has to do with is the congregation, the listener, the people to whom I'm speaking. And I've realized the less I know who that is, the more unknown they are to me, the more threatening they can be, and the higher can the level of anxiety rise. If it's that judge up there, I'm terrified. But here in my home church, my family, I will tell you that that level of anxiety has diminished over the years. Because these are people I love. Now, I'm still aware of it, make no mistake. In terms of Sabbath gets closer, a little bit of anxiety, I say, oh boy, you know, Sabbath is coming, they're going to be there, all these people I love, but yeah, but you know, Lon Mapes is going to be there, and Helen Staples Evans is going to be there, and Dick Osmer is going to be and my wife's going to, I better bring my A game. You know, so there is a little bit of anxiety. Okay, got to be sure everything's ready. But that gets much better over the years. But there's a second element. And that's the content, what's being said, what the issue is, what the text is. And there, there are questions that arise that I work on throughout the week and say, have I studied the passage sufficiently? Do I really understand what it's saying? Have I prayed deeply enough? Ask God to work on this in my own life and heart. Found a way that there's a bridge into the world of the listener. Found a way to connect. There's that anxiety every week. But I would suggest to you that that anxiety is good because it drives me to the text and to my, my knees. It's the same in some of your worlds. I'll have to tell you, when I take a flight down in Ontario, California, and that pilot boards the plane, I hope he has a little bit of anxiety about it. I hope he's thinking about the fact he's got 120 of us back there whose lives depend on him being sharp, on her paying attention. I hope there's a sense, yeah, we got to take this really seriously. We're going to go through our checklist very carefully. I hope there's that. I hope when the surgeon walks into the operating suite that there is a sense that says, this patient's life is in my hands. And there's just a little skip of a beat. And a sense that says, okay, i got to take this seriously. I had a simple medical procedure not too long ago. I had to be put out. I was going to say put down, but that's the wrong word. Put out for it. <laughs> and when the doctor came in, I knew the doctor. Walked in, I just said, thank you, Jesus. Good doctor, good man. Walked over to me, explained some things, and then said, can I pray with you? And I was like, yes. Just a sense of peace, of somebody saying, I don't have every answer here. I need some divine. Now, 
on a sheerly human level, that ought to panic a person. Doctor walks in and says, can we pray before I do this? I'm like, you need prayer? Hey, let's get another doctor. But that's not what happens. What happens is an awareness that this person knows his or her finitude. I don't have every answer. So I'm asking God, and and that sense, call it anxiety, call it seriousness, call it what you want, but there's a similarity among all those that says, I need to take this seriously. I need to bring this to God. And isn't it often the same with our fear? There are times when you have a sense of dis-ease in a social situation with a particular person in a certain context. DeBecker would say, Pay attention to that. Don't just ignore it because it's in that middle space. It's not saying, I have no fear, no worry. It's not saying, I'm so overwhelmed I can't function. It's saying, I feel this and I need to assess it and act according. So we come to the end of the series. We've been toying with that question, is it possible to live without fear? We've talked about some ways to deal with anxiety and fear that are too much in our lives. But today, maybe it has a place. A healthy sense of fear. A healthy sense of anxiety. That will drive us to our knees. That will bring us in humility before God. With no fear on the vertical. But seeking wisdom on the horizontal. Saying, God, I need help with this. So if your fear, if your anxiety is overwhelming you, get help. Read, study, talk to someone, talk to a professional. Make sure you're telling yourself the truth. But if it's in that mid-range, then maybe it's time to simply say, God, I entrust my life into your hand. And to just keep walking with Jesus. Because as you do, your love for God will crowd out any fear of God. And peace in that primary relationship will change your life. Let's pray together. God of grace, God of grace, thank you. Thank you so much, so much for the fact that you love us. We matter to you. You're God, and we're not. Thank you that we can turn to you in trust and in prayer. Lord, please fill us with a sense of your presence, of your spirit. Hold us by the hand. Let us be attentive to these things called emotions that you've given us, not allowing them to overwhelm us recognizing that they have value and bringing all we are to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.